good. Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, a two-time Emmy Award-winning producer, an award-winning author, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Jessica Lynn, author of Kissing Frogs the 13th. And full disclosure, Jessica was the first author under my company, New Reads Publications, and her novel, Kissing Frogs, was published in 2019. So this interview makes the two-year anniversary of her book. And also, Jessica and I have been friends since we were... 13 and 15. So it's a lot of key keys in this episode. But let me tell you about Jessica Lynn. She is the proud graduate of the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University Undergraduate Program for Elementary Education and Clark Atlanta University's Master of Educational Leadership and Administration Program. She began her career teaching elementary school and has worked as an educator for over a decade. In 2014, she self-published Love Like Water in a Basket, a compilation of poetry written over the course of 13 years. Jessica began writing Kissing Frogs the 13th in 2017, after the birth of her son, Jameson. Many details are tribute to her mentor and favorite author, the late Leslie Banks, who encouraged her to keep writing during her early 20s. Jessica is a Chicago native what's up, and now resides in Washington, D.C. with her son. In this conversation, we discuss why it takes time to bring forth the book everyone says you should write, the intersection of art and spirituality, backsliding back into bad relationships, and living your dreams for yourself, even when you hold other titles like wife, mother, and teacher. Black and published family, Welcome, Jessica, to the show. All right, first question. When did you know that you were a writer? I've been writing since I was in, like, the fourth grade. Um, my favorite teacher who was the reason I became a teacher uh, would love my short stories and my poems. And um, I continued writing poems as an outlet for traumas and just experiences that I was having growing up well into high school, as you know. (laughs) And um, ultimately it turned into Kissing Frogs. But there's a lot of time between the poems you wrote in high school and your first inclinations, I think, of kissing frogs. So let's talk about the journey of this first book. Where did it come from and how did you get it out? Well, the first book wasn't kissing frogs. The first book was Love Like Water in a Basket, which was a book of poetry. And a friend of mine um, had been reading my journals for a long time and in the conversations that we would have about the things that I would write, he would be like, you know, you should really write the book. Just write the book, Jess, write the book. And um, I would laugh it off and say, okay. And it never happened. And um, it never happened. And then over time, um, 
I noticed that every time I would have uh, an emotional struggle or uh, struggles with friends or relationships or whatever, I would write it out. And that was kind of how I processed my feelings. And when I was doing really well and I was very, very happy or I was at peace with whatever was going on around me, I didn't necessarily write as much. And when I was struggling, uh, I knew this, I noticed that I started to write more. And so, um, I had a conversation with my grandmother before she passed away and she was just like, you know, you have to find ways to process those emotions. And if that process is in your writing, then do it, you know, do that. And so before, before she passed away, she also encouraged me to write the book. And, um, Another little piece inside of there is uh, one of my favorite authors. Her name is L.A. Banks. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting with her and having a relationship with her uh, for a couple of years before she ultimately passed away. I believe she had brain cancer, but she passed away and she used to regularly encourage me. We had had plenty of conversations with one another leading up to her transition And um, she regularly would tell me, the world needs this. Like, the world needs your words. You need to publish these things. You need to tell your stories. You need to say what you have to say. Um, And she was like, you know, I wish that someone would have told me those things earlier in my life. And I received it. And then I was devastated when she passed away. And so then I didn't write anything at all for about five good years. Um, And so then at one point I was really, really going through something. I was having a relationship with an artist. He's a musical artist. And uh, he went through this place where he completely just ghosted me. And it was around Christmas. And I was really angry, really frustrated, really sad. And uh, I had a conversation with an elder that I have a relationship with. And she was just like, you know, Sweetie, that's just water in a basket. And I was like, because it's what my grandmother used to say to me. My grandmother's deceased. And I was like, oh, gosh. Okay, all right, all right, all right. And so the the other friend that I had who used to consistently say, just write the book, just write the book. And so then I spent that this whole winter season in front of my computer organizing my work, my poetry into formats for a book. And um, a few months went by and I met a woman who was like, oh, I can help you self-publish. And I was like, yeah. And I think four months later, I published Love Like Water in a Basket. What year was this? 2014. That was 2014. And yes, that was the first book. But was that the book that they were talking about when they said, just write the book? No, they were talking about kissing frogs, but I, I had, I had and have so many other stories that I have yet to put into play and life is happening around me. And it's very hard for me to sit and focus because life is happening around me. And so, um, when I would talk to people about experiences that I'd had or dreams that I have or crazy ideas that I have, like this will make a great book. 
And they go, yes, write the book. Okay, well, what are you telling me for? But write the book. <laughs> and so um, Kissing Frogs was a compilation of experiences that were shared and communicated about between friends. So my friends, extensions of my friends, things that I bit I had been through personally and witnessed personally, and then maybe someone else had the same almost identical experience. And you know, I would have been like, only in the life of Jess would this craziness happen. And then talk to another person and they experience the same thing like, okay, so maybe it's not only in the life of Jess that these things happen. And um, I started to realize that in a lot of me telling my story, my personal story to people, I helped people heal a lot from the things that they were struggling with. And I wasn't giving myself credit for that. And I wasn't taking ownership uh, of that because it felt kind of egotistical, I guess to say, to take ownership of how my growth or trauma or experience good or bad help somebody else grow and um rather than take ownership of somebody else's process and rather than have the same conversation with the same five friends about girl don't you do it don't do it don't send the text don't stalk the social media. Don't ma- accept the phone call. Don't go visit him. You don't need closure. If you don't go and find your vibrator and masturbate and then pick up the phone and call him and see if you still feel the same, like you're not really, you're not, you don't miss him. You're just ovulating. Okay. Like that kind of conversation, like having those kinds of conversations with girlfriends and they still do the same thing anyway. And then there's that sliver of a chance that she makes a different choice. And that is always the most meaningful part. So what if I can have that same conversation with millions of girlfriends without having to go through the phone calls, the, the, the golden table discussions, the <laughs> come to Jesus moments, those interventions like I got to call all of our girlfriends and our crew so we can plan an intervention and show up at your house and keep you from doing stupid stuff like what if I could do all of that in just one place and be transparent because I know that I too have done that so it's not a it's not being communicated from a place of judgment so much as it is a place of experience and love. And when we talk to each other in the hair salon and the nail salon and, you know, whatever place where we can feel anonymous and, you know, share with one another, we tell each other some hard stuff and we tend to overcome difficult things, but we don't listen to our friends when our friends tell us those things. So was it therapeutic for you to finally write the book that you had been encouraged to write since the early 2000s after you finally put the the poems out in Love Like Water in a Basket? Oh, yes. Um, In that space, um, when I finally sat down to start writing Kissing Frogs, I was maybe just a a year into my journey into motherhood. Um, My marriage was falling apart around me. 
Um, I was struggling with postpartum depression. I was trying to process my healing with my relationship with my family, my, my immediate family, my mother, my father, my siblings, that kind of really, really played a heavy role in what was happening in my marriage. Um, and I really just didn't feel like I had support. And um, people who know me well, sorry, people who know me well know that when I feel that way, I tend to go inward as opposed to outward. And I try to address things on my own. And it's a bad habit, but it's who I am. And, you know, I'll grow a little bit more every day. Um, but in that space, it was all I could do. Um, and it was the first time in my life where I didn't feel like I was in, in control of anything. And so, you know how we are as women, we feel like we're not in control. So we cut our hair off. Or we feel like we're not in control, so we go on a weird, crazy workout binge, or we go shopping, retail therapy, or whatever other thing that we feel like we can, we remodel our houses, or re move our furniture around and change the energy, or whatever the case. And so this was the first time in my adult life where I had felt this out of control, and the only thing that I could do was focus on my writing. So... You know, I'd, I'd have my my little boppy pillow around my waist and my baby on the boppy pillow cluster feeding while I'm over here like this, over his head. Or, you know, I'd sit up late at night um, until two in the morning writing. And it was interesting because there's so much romance and love and lust and passion and energy and um life between those characters and in those moments and what i was living at the time was not a reflection of that and a lot of time the the location that i would go to do most of my writing wasn't i wasn't at home um i would there was a, a restaurant down the street from my house that i would go to and sit and work and late in the evening the people around me would the music would be loud and, you know, the, the, the drinks are going everywhere and people are laughing and people are dancing and people are meeting for the first time and flirting and, you know, going on first and second dates and seeing that person across the, the room. And it, the energy in there was so high and it was so opposite what I was experiencing in my real life. And so I would go there so that I could feed that energy into what was happening around me. I'm sorry, into my novel, because I remember pre-mom Jess, pre-marriage Jess, pre-30 Jess, and what that was like. And not that I was so far removed from that, where it was difficult for me to conceptualize it, but it wasn't a reflection of what was happening in my day to day. It sounds like you were writing almost out of desperation to get that happiness back. And I wonder if those who were telling you years and years, almost a decade before, Hey, the world needs this book. Did you believe them then? And did those words ever come back to you during the writing process? 
I did believe them then. And the most of the people who told me to just write the book, Jess, were part of the, the group of people that I chose to kind of edit my book. So as I wrote it, I would send a few chapters here, a few chapters there to the same group of people and they would read through it. And then they would ask me questions if, you know, if there was some confusion about what was happening and, or if, uh, uh, if it needed just something more and, I got to hear the feedback from the people who had encouraged me most over the years and other people who didn't even know me back then, but you know, they knew me in this, in that time frame, and still know me now, of course. But, um, my writing process was unlike the writing process of a lot of other authors that I've talked to. Um, and I was just actually sharing this with a friend who is reading kissing frogs right now for the first time. And she was just like, how did you, you know, how did you go about this? And I was telling her, you know, a lot of time I would just show up in front of my laptop and just dump. And then I would spend, after I had dumped out everything that I could dump out, like I, I laid the foundation for whatever my story was or whatever that chapter was. And then I would go back and edit for sensory kind of awareness. So this is my story, but what's going on around me? What do I see? You know, what smells are in the air? What does this feel like? What does it sound like? And I would edit, spend a day just editing just for those things. And um, she was like, this needs to be a movie. (laughs) This needs to be a movie. I can see everything. Like this needs to be a movie. Like an audio book wouldn't do it justice. We need visuals. We need to see these things. And I've heard that a lot um, over the past couple of years since other people have read it. And um, I won't say that it was necessarily an act of desperation, but it, it brought me peace. And it helped to remind me of parts of who I am And it also helped me make peace with versions of myself that I had been and hold space for versions of myself that had not yet become. And you did all of this while mothering, while attempting to wife or wifing as best as you possibly could um, and working a full-time job as a teacher which is not an easy one as everyone has learned in the year of our Lord 2020. (laughs) So what, (laughs) what has that, that balance been like for you juggling? What was it like juggling it all, trying to write it all out and get it done? And what has it been like in the aftermath that the book has come out? Um, in the timeframe that it was happening, the only time that I've ever experienced this level of like, dogged focus on something was when I was in graduate school. Um, And in graduate school, I was working a a full-time job as a teacher, a part-time job as like an after-school teacher. And I I was taking graduate classes, which really only requires you to take maybe two classes, 
two to three classes a semester. I was taking like four and five classes a semester. Right. I graduated my program in two years and I was the youngest person in my program. So I was just like this the whole time. And simultaneously during that time, I was going through so many other things. I was losing a house. Um, My house went into foreclosure. I was um, recovering from a horrible breakup with the person that I ultimately ended up getting married to and having a child with, but, (laughs) and uh, experiencing uh, kind of recreating myself, rebuilding myself from some previous traumas. And it was like almost identical circumstances, like on an energetic level, on what it required of me emotionally. And so it was a place that it was like an anchor, like a focal point, an anchor point where I could go and inwardly and outwardly process my feelings and walk away from it knowing that I I was going to go back and revisit it. I was going to go back and edit those experiences and um, make peace with those parts of myself, but I needed to just blah. And then um, I can say that being married at the time, um, my ex-husband was deeply focused on his entrepreneurial endeavors. (laughs) I love you so much. Side note, she's laughing because I've known her since the year 2000. So we're going on 21 years of friendship and she can see my face as she's talking. So that's a little behind the scenes of this conversation, black and, black and published fam. So we're going to carry on now and I'm going to try to hold my face together. <laughs> you made that face so loud. <laughs> but um, yeah, so he was deeply focused on his entrepreneurial career and he encouraged me on more than one occasion to just quit my job and start a business. And I was like, well, as bright and fluffy as that sounds, like one of us has to be the anchor. There's that word again. One of us has to be the anchor. One of us has to hold shit together while the other one gets to be light and fluffy. And even in my being light and fluffy, I was still holding all of my balls up in the air. And you know why I said it that way. (laughs) And so um, with that being said, it was like, I didn't have a choice. Mm. I didn't have a choice. And, you know, the, the archetype of the strong black woman who endures all things and overcomes all things. And it's exhausting. But to be honest, we all carry that ancestral trauma because we don't have a choice. We don't have the luxury of soft places to fall apart. And sometimes not even with our friends. Unless maybe you have a nice therapist. <laughs> um, and so that being said, it was just like, he, he constantly, constantly tried to get me to um, focus more on the light and fluffy things. But that took away from the very heavy things that needed to be focused on and needed to be done. And like bills. 
Exactly. Health insurance, you know, <laughs> mothering, having a having a, a infant to consider and sleepless nights and, you know, all of that cluster feeding, dear God, teething, you know, so all of those things that were happening um, that I processed and endured mostly by myself. He he was usually not there. And so I really didn't have the luxury of space for that, even though I was trying to be the best mother I could be, be the best partner I could be and find my way and and my voice as a writer. Writing was very much and has very much been your outlet. Do you ever see it as your primary career? Or do you even want it to be that, to, to occupy that space? Because with the word career comes pressure and demand. Exactly, exactly. And I'm not against that. Like, I'm not close to the idea of it being the my career, my number one thing. Um, I just don't know how to do that right now. And, you know, that's a like they say, a living document. This is a, a, a constantly evolving experience. And um, as the opportunities become available, you know, I will make myself available. But, you know, I, I put it out there into the universe and um, I do the things that I need to do in the meantime, in between time. And when opportunities present themselves, I show up, you know, guns blazing, ready to go. Um, and I also recognize that a, a large part of writing is thinking about the writing and having the experiences necessary for you to process those thoughts and feelings. And um, especially when you're writing about writing content that is so emotional and um, so raw a lot of times while still being poetic. So, you know, it just, it requires a different kind of energy than I think um, maybe nonfiction or historical fiction or something of that nature would require. And I'm okay with that. I know that the 400 plus pages of Kissing Frogs is a good few seasons of uh, a TV show. If anybody ever decided to make it such, you know, it is what it is. (laughs) And I'm gonna put a pin in that. And I'm going to move the conversation to talk specifically about kissing frogs. There's a lot of things that you've mentioned repeatedly in just the conversation we've had so far. Trauma, emotional experiences, ancestral connection, and anchoring. And your main character, Journey, is very much the anchor of the story and the anchor and the friendships that are happening in her orbit. Um, She has a gift that connects her to... um, the realm of the dead and the ancestors and the plane of the living. Um, she goes through a lot of emotional uh, things and some of them can be quite traumatic. Why do that to her? Do that to your main character? Because it's honest and it's real. And it is the experience that so many people actually have. And it's just not, it's not the common conversation. You know, you don't walk into um, the nail salon and sit next to the girl getting her nails done next to you and go, hey, you know, have you ever had a dream about a person that you never met in real life? (laughs) I think that you're nuts, you know, um, but there are people who experience those things. And, you know, I've had 
plenty of experiences, spiritual experiences where I've dreamed of people that I've never met before ever. And then I meet them in real life and, you know, have these very long and complex relationships with them. And there's a lot of growth that takes place, but you, people don't grow through being perfect. People grow from making mistakes. People learn from making mistakes. And so if we create the the perfect Disney character who never has anything bad happen to them and then lean to the 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 good conquers and presides over evil and all of that idea constantly. Well, that's nice and it it's pretty and it's fluffy, but it's not real. It's not real. I mean, I can count on all of my fingers of people that I know who are very good people and, you know, do everything that they're told to do that's right. And then their experiences are terrible. And so, you know, that is more truthful and realistic than the fluffy stuff that we want to see. The conversation that I had with uh, one of my readers yesterday, she said, I'm so mad at Journey right now. She spent her whole three days getting over Devin's character, and I can't believe that she went back. And I said, but isn't that what we all do? That's what we do. And I said, the same way that you are yelling at her in your head, mad at her in your head for making the decision that she's making, that's more in alignment and realistic and true to what we do than her pretending that she's tough, pretending that she doesn't care, pretending that this isn't an inconvenience to her, pretending that, you know, she's perfect. And she's going to learn from the experience just like you're like you learn from your experience and what comes after that is what's most important. But, you know, too frequently we watch movies and TV shows and, you know, read books about people who have these experiences, good and bad. And, you know, where's the development in them afterward? We aspire to be perfect without considering what got us to whatever end result. We aspire to be hashtag relationship goals, hashtag black love matters, hashtag all of these things and seldom display the process to get there. And if we're really there to begin with and being true, if we're and true to it, if we're not, you know, because there's so many people who smile in public and pretend in public, but that's not how they really feel. And that's not who they really are. And so I wanted to write a character who was real, a character who everybody could see themselves in, a character who, no matter how angry you got at her or the people around her, you probably know somebody (laughs) who's done that same thing, if it's not you, which forces you to do what? Hold that mirror up to yourself and look at yourself and be honest with yourself without and that's a whole intervention that's a whole therapy session without me having without you having to pay a hundred dollars or hope that your insurance covers it and so like on that note like journey's name is very intentional as is the story of her she you her name is journey she's going on this journey so in the beginning we meet her and she's very 
almost about the pretense of being strong of appearances. And by the end of the book, she's had a spiritual awakening due to a number of things. She's more empathic than she was in the beginning. She's understanding the nature of her prophetic dreams. And it kind of ends in this, she's happy and she's settled, but it's not, it's not over. It's not stable. And so why end it like that? And then after we answer this question, I'm going to have you tee up a scene to read from the book. Okay. Um, The ending of Kissing Frogs was intentionally written that way because one, I knew that there was going to be a second book. I knew that if I continued going in this direction, the story would never end. And at some point, every story has to end, right? (laughs) So I needed to find a stopping point, which gave enough closure to the details that were happening while still allowing the hint that there was something more to come. That's one side of it. That's the artistic side of it. The other side of it is it was that part of it was so reflective of what was happening to me. Um, in my, in my reality, I was so committed to what I wanted and what was in front of me and making my marriage work and making my happy writing, my happy ending the way that I wanted it to go and making that happen with my ex-husband. I was committed to that. Um, And as you know, because we have such a 21 year long friendship, (laughs) um, it was a story that was 15 years long. And, you know, it was, I needed that to be pretty and nice and look a certain way inside. Like I had that need inside and I can communicate that and discuss that openly. Um, I think that every woman gets married without the idea of what will happen if this doesn't go. Cause who wants to get married to somebody and think, well, what's going to happen if we get divorced? Nobody gets married with the intention to get divorced. Hopefully dear, hopefully, <laughs> um, you know, but that's not what we, aspire to. And so watching everything fall apart around me was like, what the heck is going on with my life right now? Like I worked so hard for my happiness. I suffered so much. And I'm definitely a a huge advocate now for women, especially black women experiencing love that doesn't require them to suffer first before they are considered worthy of good treatment. But that's another conversation. Um, I looked like to the outside world as if I had everything that I wanted. I looked like my relationship was in a beautiful little box with a nice little bow on top. I had this adorable, gorgeous little baby with my face. I had this husband who was daring to dream and do something different. And I was willing to support that, even though I didn't always agree with it, but I was willing to support that. And there were so many things that were imperfect about what was happening in front of me, but so many opportunities for those imperfections to be good. And I just didn't know what would happen next. When did you Um, stop suffering for your happiness? 
girl, that's loaded. <laughs> that is a loaded question. Um, I think that the nail in the coffin for that experience with me occurred in a therapy session with my ex-husband where he said something that to me that he, he can never take back. And it was one of those things where I realized you are not and have not ever been who you showed up to, who you pretended to be. And this was all a game. And I don't know why, why choose me? Like I spent a very long time after that wondering why choose me? Why, why? What made you pick me out of all of these women around the world? And all of the times that we've let each other go, why choose me to be the person that you do this to? And I was completely undone. And I think that that was the first step in me peeling back the, the, the wallpaper on the windows of my glass house. And was this before or after you finished Kissing Frogs? It was before. So how did that impact the book? Because you say the, the book ends in a bow. It, it has a nice little neat little bow. You can stop the story. There's also this, this shadow hovering over the top. And I think that people who are just, they're not, they're not processing the ending like a person who's not committed to Disney endings. They're a person, these are people who are committed to happy endings who think that it's going to stay happy and anybody else who either knows me personally or who is recognizing that, that there's an underlying something that's not, there's something that's not right. Something's not right. There's something hidden going on and either she's going to have to write a sequel or she left me with so many questions and I'm mad. And, you know, of course there's going to be a sequel. And so I wanted to leave it so that way when the sequel opens, it opens in the now time and gets to go back and tell the story of how she got to now. And I did that on purpose, mostly because at the time that I was finishing Kissing Frogs, I was in my now time. And I had already told so much of the story of how I got to that now time. And I was still processing a lot of the pain, trauma, disappointment of everything that happened in between tying that bow and that day. So um, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to have the foresight at the time to communicate about that. And I was still processing my own pain. And um, toward the end of finishing Kissing Frogs, like I struggled to write those last chapters because she was so happy. And I, I remembered when I was that happy. I remembered watching other people be that happy for me. And if you told May 15th, 2020, Jess, that I'm sorry, if you told May 15, 2015, Jessica, that May 15, 2020, 
would be a completely different reality, I don't know that I would believe you. So we've been talking a lot about Journey and Jess and you as a writer write fiction that is very closely aligned to your life. I don't want to be one of those people. So I want to let you take this time to introduce the world. They've gotten to know Jessica Lynn. Now introduce them to Journey with a a snippet from Kissing Frogs, wherever you like to start. But first, the description from the back cover. Kissing Frogs the 13th follows Journey Richards' quest for love and the friends and lovers she makes and loses along the way. After moving from Atlanta to Washington, D.C. with her best friend, Erica, and a devastating breakup with her boyfriend, Journey finds herself employing her three-day rule to mourn the loss of her relationship with Devin. However, this breakup is different because Journey's highly intuitive abilities were the cause of Devin's exit. Although Journey is heartbroken and confused, her perceptive dreams and visions have grown stronger and will have a major impact on her life and those around her. Will Journey's friendship stay intact? Will she ever find the love she deserves? From the ancestral realm to karaoke, thrilling danger, sexy exploits, heart-wrenching drama, and the highs and lows of friendships, relationships, and family bonds, Kissing Frogs the 13th will make you laugh, cry, and feel everything in between. Jessica Lynn, take it away. All right. It was a cold and overcast Saturday in October and I was sitting in front of my vanity, pouting at my reflection in the mirror. I was feeling pitiful and frustrated by my disheveled appearance, but it had been a long night full of dreams and reliving the voice messages I had left on my newly ex-boyfriend's phone. My roommate, Erica, tapped on my door and popped her head in without invitation. Journey, you all right in here? I responded with an empty glance at her through the mirror, but I didn't turn around. She came all the way into the room and leaned against my vanity. You know, you were too good for him, right? I mean, who just disappears like that? This time I refused to look at her at all. I just blinked and blinked, wishing she would get out and let me be, but knowing she meant well. I blinked back the tears and took a shaky breath. I'm going to take a shower and then we can go to Eatonville for breakfast. I need to eat. I need to work. I need noise. I need distraction. I need to get the hell out of this house. Just give me 30 minutes and I'll be ready, okay? I sounded stronger than I felt. I just wanted her out of my space so I could process my feelings. I do so. I do and say almost anything to get her out of my room. Okay, she said. She bounced off the edge of my vanity and out of my room. She had melted down over many a guy during our friendship, and I was always there to help her sweep up the pieces of her, her heart's broken pieces. But she wasn't a very big help when the situation was reversed, and I knew it. I was more determined to emotionally manage myself. I needed three days to feel and wallow in the depths of whatever the feelings were going to be. I needed three days to examine all angles of the wound. And after the three days, I would push forward. This was my process. And damn it, I needed my three days. I was only on day two. Erica was different. She would brood for weeks and months over a broken heart. I think there's a guy she's been crying over for a few years. I couldn't live that way. I had been through way too much hurt over the years. So my process was to spend a day analyzing the guy a day analyzing myself, and a day mourning the loss of the relationship. After that, every other second of every other day was spent healing. I fluffed my curly hair on one side of my head until it stood on end. 
I tugged the other side down and finger combed my way through the massive bed head I was sporting. I stood up, pulled my pink flannel pajama shirt over my head and my green striped pants down, and I left them in the middle of the floor as I trotted off to the shower. Under the hot stream of water, I was safe to think, cry, and remember. Naturally, my thoughts drifted to Devin and the last time I saw him. I leaned into the stream of hot water, letting it wet my hair and run down my face and mix with my fresh tears, blinking as it dripped off my lashes. All right, that's good. So it opens in heartbreak and it ends in a place of happiness, but that is that is but that is gonna lead into something else because we all know now that you are working on a part two. So what do you want readers to get out of this book? I want people to process that they're not perfect and that's okay. And I want people to understand that their imperfections are growing spaces, you know? Um, and the only place that you really have to be afraid of is a place of stagnation. <laughs> um, and that the journey is the destination. How do you see your creative pursuit? Um, what do you mean? So you have been writing forever, um, and it's manifested in lots of different ways. You have your, your poetry collection, Love Like Water in a Basket. You have your novel, Kissing Frogs the 13th. You have a sequel that you're working on, but you've also admitted you have lots of other stories and things that you want to say and to tell. So how do you see the journey of this creative pursuit in your life when this is not right now the main thing that you do? Um, I would like to see myself have more time. And, you know, I feel like in this space, time is currency. But I want to, I want to tell the stories. I want to tell the stories that keep, uh, about the characters that keep me up at night, you know. Um, and I've learned that, you know, when the voices of the characters that keep me up at night are getting too loud, then it's time for me to write them a little bit, give them some some space <laughs> to pass through. And uh, my experience as a mother and my experience as an educator, as well as my experience as a writer, have definitely played a huge role in my timing as far as what stories I tell and the time frame, Like, I think that if I had written the story, uh, the novel about a bunch of children and some experiences that they had just based on a dream that I had a long time ago, is very Stephen King. <laughs> um, I think that if I had written that book uh, in today's climate, it would have been uh, a little interesting and a little different <laughs> and maybe not necessarily in the best way. So, you know, timing is everything. And so I think that I'll get there. I don't know what the trajectory is going to be. Um, but I do know that with the way that I tell stories, I think that every one of them would be something that will be adaptable to film or TV. And um, like I said, time. All right. Everything. We're going to go into a speed round and then I have two final questions for you and then I'm going to let you go. Okay. All right. So speed round. What's your favorite book? 
Mm. Man, I don't like that one. <laughs> um, men up the devil. Okay. Your it's favorite artist. By who? Anne Rice. I knew you were going to say something by, something by Anne Rice. I was waiting for it. All right. You've already answered this, but say it again. Your favorite author? L.A. Banks. Your favorite movie? Mm, genre specific? Nope. One of my favorite movies is The Feast of All Saints, which is also based on a book by Anne Rice. And another favorite movie would be Practical Magic that stars Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman. Your favorite song? <laughs> Drops of Jupiter by Train. All right. So for Kissing Frogs, you created a drink called the Kissing Frog, which leads to my next question. White or dark liquor? Dark. <laughs> I like my liquor like I like my men. <laughs> hey. Um, what is your perfect date scenario? Mm. Stargazing by the beach. LFBB, I need you to pay attention for when you hear this episode. <laughs> Thanks. Um, At international beach, so that there's no light pollution. <laughs> further details for that person who will not be named. Um, your preferred living space, because the book takes place in D.C. and Atlanta intermittently. Which one do you prefer, D.C. or Atlanta? Neither. Um, if I have to choose my perfect living space, I would return to Florida. I'm just saying, though. You know, Florida was good for my hair, my skin, and my heart. So that's all I got to say. Well, one thing all men should know when dating. One thing that you think they should know when dating. Girl, that's a laundry list. <laughs> Pick one. Mmm. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Hmm. Oh. The best apology is a changed behavior. All other things are emotional manipulations. Who? One thing you think all <laughs> women should know when dating. I'm going to leave that one there. <laughs> I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to pick it up. I'm not going to touch it. I'm not looking at it. Next question. One thing you think all women should know when dating. Mm. I would say uh, establish healthy boundaries with yourself and have a healthy relationship with yourself before you try to have a rela healthy relationship with anybody else because the relationship that you have with others is always a reflection of your relationship with yourself. And final speed round question. One thing you never leave home without? Aside from my, my child, uh, <laughs> um, one thing I never leave home without and I never take off is the fish necklace that's on around my neck. It came from my grandmother. It belonged to her before she passed away. All right. That's very sweet. And we say her name so that we give all accolades to the ancestors. Christine Ellison. Okay. And final two questions. Um, have you embraced being an author? I have. I think that there are times that um, it isn't the first uh, description 
of myself that I provide to others. Like sometimes I have to remind myself like, Oh wait. Yeah. And so in moments when we're talking about books and talking, when I'm talking to other people about books um, and I share that I've written a novel and they go, wait, what? It's funny because I think that people think that authors are not regular people. Like they have this idolized impression of what an author should look like or be like. And, you know, um, most of the time I realize that most people don't know that I'm an author, even though of course I talk about it on my social media and whatever the case may be, but I don't walk around with a, a sign on my chest that says, I'm an author, I write books, you know, or I write <laughs> books. And so when I tell people that, um, they're usually very surprised. And then um, when they start once becoming interested and in wanting to know about my books, um, there's so much, there's so much subject matter involved in kissing frogs that it's often hard for me to unpack that in a nice little neat sentence because it's not neat. It's messy and it's messy on purpose. And that's what makes it interesting. (laughs) And final question for the interview. You have plans to write lots and lots and lots of stories until you're no longer on this earth. So when you're dead and gone, what would you like someone to write about your legacy? That I endured hard things and I didn't let those hard things stop me from being the best versions of myself as I possibly could. Ladies and gentlemen, Jessica Lynn. Big thank you to Jessica for being here on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out her novel, Kissing Frogs, the 13th. And if you're not following Jessica, follow her on the socials. She's at Honey Brown Wonderland on Instagram. That's Honey Brown Wonderland. And Olosunde Honey Brown on Facebook. Olosunde is O-L-O-S-U-N-D-E. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. While you're there, leave us a rating, a review. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show next. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter at BLK and Published. And to keep up with me, head to newrights.com, N-E-W-W-R-I-T-E-S dot com, or follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show for the week. I'll holla at y'all next time. Peace.